The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Search Sky Broadband to get started. It's Friday, August the 26th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. This week, the Fianna Fáil TD for Longford Westmeath, Robert Troy, resigned as Junior Minister at the Department of Enterprise, Trade and Employment. It was the culmination of a long series of revelations about his failures to comply with regulations on standards in public office regarding his ownership of a number of different properties around the country. So how did it come to this and how seriously should we treat this matter? And and what, if anything, does it all mean for the broader political landscape as we approach the midpoint of this coalition government's term? I am joined by columnist Fintan O'Toole, political editor Pat Leahy and political correspondent Jennifer Bray. Jen, I'm going to go to you first because before this week, Troy had already been in the news for a while over reports that he had failed to declare the sale of two properties to local councils and that he'd also failed to declare a company directorship. So what then happened this week? The first key moment, I think, was the the lengthy statement released by Robert Troy. This on the 18th of August. And in this statement, he detailed all of the amendments that he had submitted to the clerk of the Dáil and also to SIBO. Now, these are really wide ranging and they go back years and they range from the various different properties. But he also declared other details that he said he was not technically obliged to declare. So this include uh, two rental, two contracts in the rental accommodation scheme. And we later learned that he also had five HAP contracts you know, he apologised for this. He said he was making all the different amendments. But the situation didn't improve last weekend because the Sunday Times reported that one of his properties was not registered with the Res- Residential Tenancies Board, which is also a legal requirement. And just to say, like, not registering your, your tenancy with your TB can carry really, really heavy penalties. So again, we had another apology and another clarification, another thing to fix. Around this time, we have Leo Varadkar saying that he is top class, um, Michal Martin uh, firmly backing him. The week started with the Irish Independent reporting that he had used all time in 2014 to call for extra funding for the scheme, which I mentioned that he had the two contracts under. But of course, he hadn't declared. Nobody knew that he was availing of that scheme with the, with the local authority. And that didn't help things. On Tuesday, another key moment when he went on RTE, uh, spoke to Brian Dobson. Now, I don't know whether you heard this interview, but he was very, very apologetic. That was the tone he was trying to strike. I'm very sorry. These were errors that I made. Here's the reasons why I made them. I didn't think I was technically supposed to, et cetera, et cetera. But during the course of that interview, then we also learned further details, which was that he either owns or co-owns 11 properties, nine of which are rented out. And I think it was at this stage that people who I talked to in Fianna Fáil in particular were starting to get really, really anxious about this drip feed of extra information it had emerged then that he has his property in Fibsburg, 25A Rathdown Road, according to the ditch about the necessity for fire certificates and the fact that there wasn't one there. And he released a statement on Wednesday afternoon defiantly saying, you know, this property does not need a fire certificate. And the reason for it is very specific planning regulations, which I won't bore you with. And then we were working on a story in the Irish Times, effectively about that property in Fibsburg that I mentioned And we got a hold of a letter which showed that they had complained to Robert Troy and the co-owner of that site 
uh, John McGivney and basically said that the, the walls around the boundary were crumbling. They had complained about dumping. They had a whole range of, uh, of other complaints and that they had brought this to his attention a number of times and yet only managed to get a meeting with him the following months. Um, and I went to Robert Troy for a comment. I went to the, the Fianna Fáil press office. I went to all the various channels. No word of anything. Everybody went to ground. And I'm not absolutely not saying that this is what happened. But all of a sudden, then at nine o'clock, um, we have a statement from Robert Troy saying that he's resigning. Now, I don't think it was that story in particular. I think it's death by a thousand cuts, to be honest with you. But I think that he was very aware that this was just going to continue and continue and get worse and worse. And then we have that classic word that we get at the tipping point of any crisis, which is distraction. I was becoming a distraction to the work of the government. And as we know, then he he resigned. So in the midst of all that going on, the first three or four days of this week, um, Fintan, you wrote a column in the Irish Times on Tuesday, in which you called for him to uh, either be fired or to re- or to resign, which of course he did a little over over twenty four hours later. But you sort of brought a, a broader perspective to it, rather than just the the kind of core details which Jen is talking about. Maybe you could lay out what that perspective is. Yeah, I think there were, it seems to me, there were three very obvious things, really, um, <clears throat> two of which were immediate, you know, to, to do with the current context, and one of which was the, lo- the longer-term story that's part of Irish society. The two immediate ones were, first of all, this guy was the Minister of State for Company Regulation. <laughs> you know, I, I, it amazed me how <clears throat> a lot of news reports referred to him as the Minister of State for Trade, which he is, but, but he's the Minister for State for Company Regulation. Uh, and that alone, I mean, leave everything else aside, right? The, the, the very fact that, that, that you have someone who is in charge of the regime for, you know, how companies are supposed to behave, who, who himself is unable to get, you know, any kind of decent, proper regulation of his own affairs and follow the law as he's supposed to do. Just that alone, you know, a Taoiseach with any stim of wit, would have said, look, I'm sorry, you can't be doing that job. You know, I think, as I put it, the, the, the minister for, for gamekeeping can't be a poacher. You, know, you, just, you just can't do it. The second one, which I think is part of the, the broader current context, you know, is the onboard Planola story, which I think is of immense seriousness. You know, I, I think it's one that's going to unfold in all sorts of difficult ways. But at the core of that you know, is precisely the same issue, which is the alleged failure of a very senior official to declare potential conflicts of interest. You know. And the government's, you know, Darrell O'Brien's been out saying he's going to clear, clean all this up, you know, that they're taking it very seriously, which they have to do. But it's not credible for a government to be saying, we're going to clean up on board Planola in relation to potential conflicts of interest while standing over one of our own who equally had undeclared potential conflicts of interest. So those were the two immediate things that just struck me, like any one of those alone, I think, ought to have led to him being fired. But then we all know that there's a much bigger context to this. We all know that Ireland is a society which has been profoundly scarred by the consequences of low standards in politics. We know for obvious historical reasons that Ireland is one of the places that should have one of the strictest regimes, ethical regimes for holders of public office in the world. And yet we have a very, very weak one. And really the only protection the public has in terms of the possibility of public office being misused is the declaration of interests. I mean, that's really what we've got. 
because the sanctions regime is is very very poor you know the 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 consequences of somebody being found by sipo to have breached regulations are are pretty minimal so so really the only thing the public has standing between us and the potential for public office to be misused is the register of interests so robert troy's repeated failure to you know fulfill his most basic obligations in terms of just registering his interests that's all he was being asked to, to do you know it's not an onerous obligation and it's also not you know he he was unable to explain at any point how he managed not to make proper declarations over a decade he he was coming out with this stuff that it was a failure of due diligence which is putting it very mildly but he was also saying that he misinterpreted the rules now which of which of them was it you know i, I mean if you didn't do your due, due diligence means you didn't really bother if you misinterpreted the rules it means that you tried to follow them but but somehow you know weren't able to read because the rules are very very clear you know it's really not that mysterious it just says all your interests during the year you know all the property you held all the shares you held all the company directorships you held during the year and somehow he he claimed that he had managed to interpret this as meaning that it was only at the point at the end of the year when you were filling out the form what what were your interests at that time there's nothing even vaguely in the rules that suggests that that's the case so it it, it seemed pretty clear that he he simply had decided that that these rules were entirely unimportant but the key question then i think was that it wasn't really about robert troy in the end it was about the fact that the tishok and the tonishta who were supposed to be the upholders of ethics you know particularly the tishok is the one who's supposed to you know uphold standards in government were basically saying he was a great fellow and sure he just made a couple of mistakes and so what they were saying and and are still saying i mean they've never criticized him you know they've never actually t- so far tackled this so what they were saying was you can ignore all these rules you can repeatedly make declarations that are not accurate and all that happens then is that you say sorry you go on brian dobson and you 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 know you beat your chest a little bit and you correct the record and then everything is grand sure if that's the case then then all these rules are completely meaningless i mean why would anybody bother and you know what why why would i bother making an accurate tax declaration for example you know if 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 i if i can say hey, you know 10 years ago i forgot that bit of bit of income i got from the irish times um you know but i'm i'm now now that i've been found out i'm i'm telling you about it and i'm really sorry i mean why why would a company that this guy was supposed to be regulating say well i actually we 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 did make false declarations to the company's office over the last 10 years but you're terrible sorry about it and you know now that you've drawn it to our attention you know here's the here's the proper returns so the whole ethics regime just just falls apart not not just if troy got away with it which in the end he didn't but if the tishok continues to stand over this kind of behavior and not take it seriously what about all that pat i mean you wrote an analysis of this where among among other things you said that Irish politics is is less tolerant of this kind of thing that it was in the past. But one of the things about this, as Finton suggests, there is there are kind of you know dark monsters from the recent political past, which including the confessional with Brian Dobson, by the way, which kind of rear their their ugly head again. However fair or unfair that might be, don't they? Yeah, I mean, I, I think if you go back and Finton has touched on it there, that the reason we have this 
you know, fairly substantial in legal infrastructure of ethics legislation is because of the very conspicuous failings of uh, and corruptions in our politics in the past. So while we have these, and, you know, we can talk maybe a little bit later about, you know, how, how that legal infrastructure might be changed and the reforms that, that are required, but it is, it is pretty extensive. What hasn't really been extensive is two things. One is the way that it has been treated by politicians and, and you know, by politics more, more broadly, perhaps, uh, and also the lack of, you know, independent enforcement on it. It's basically left up to political opponents or assiduous members of the public or the media to police the ethics laws. But there's also been something in our political culture in the way we have, the way politics has observed these laws. That So some of what Finton was saying there, you know, that when breaches of the regulations are brought to light, that the attitude has often been, oh, yes, well, you know, it's not terribly, it's not all that important. It's only these, you know, kind of petty fogging regulations that require me, uh, require these intrusions on my business empire that I run in conjunction with my duties as a public representative. And that is quite common throughout Leinster House. And, you know, it, it, it has tended to be regarded as more of a venial sin in our political culture. I think that is now changing. I mean, we used to say that nobody ever resigned in Irish politics, but actually there's been lots of resignations from this government, from Fianna Fáil particularly. And I think that's one of the things, that's what I was trying to point out in the piece without making a judgment on it, that this is indicative of a change in the way our politics operates, that this lacks approach to the observation of rules uh, is is no longer satisfactory for many people. And, you know, as our politics changes, and, you know, we've talked here often before about how the structure of our politics is changing, but so is the culture uh, of, of our politics. And I think this is, I think this is one of the things that's going on there. There is also, I think, or there has been a sort of a, a sort of double think, uh, particularly in Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, about the their obligations under the the ethics legislation. And I mean, I think that has gone along the lines of that while lots of people in Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, you know, would recognise the need and certainly pay lip service to the need for the ethics legislation on the basis of the era of the tribunals showed us all these, you know, mistakes, etc., that have been made and a few bad apples and that sort of, that sort of thing. But they also at the same time believe that Yes, but, you know, we're also, our parties are also responsible for, you know, this comparatively rich and successful country that we inhabit now. And I think that has played into the not quite take it or leave it attitude to their obligations to declare interests under uh, under the ethics legislation. But certainly, you know, to a sense that, you know, these are not all that terribly important as part of their duties as public representatives. There is one more thing I think that is at play that is evidence of a change in, in, in the way our politics works in this controversy. And that is that the story was broken by, you know, a small independent online 
outlet and was immediately chased up then by the older, more traditional media such as ourselves. And I think that is something, if you think about, you know, Leo Varadkar's uh, leaking of the the GP's contract, that was that was also done by, you know, a marginal media outlet, Village Magazine, and was immediately seized on by established media. Not just because it was a, a a decent story, but there is this terror, I think, in established media, you know, not to be left behind by newer newer outlets that in many cases adopt a more aggressive attitude to these sort of issues uh, than has been the course in traditional media. I mean, in my view, that's a development to be, you know, to be welcomed and to celebrate anything that strengthens, you know, that strengthens media with, with new media, particularly at this time when other media is under pressure is a good idea. We're going to take a quick break, but there's lots of points there which I want to come back to and go into a little bit more detail right after this. Never suffer the buffer again. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Whether you're streaming on the sofa. Gaming in the bedroom. Or swiping in the bathroom. I said swiping. You'll never be without it. Switch your home to 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Availability subject to location requires Sky Broadband Ultrafast. For more info, see sky.ie forward slash speeds. 99.9% reliability based on time our broadband network works across our base. And welcome back. I'm here with Fintan O'Toole, Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray. Jen, there's another side to this story, which is reflected in Dermot Ferreter's column in the Irish Times uh, this morning on Friday, where he points to the fact that I think around 30% or more of the members of the Oireachtas are landlords of one sort or another, whereas in the population at large, only 3% of the population are landlords of, of one sort or another. It's not a crime to be a landlord. However, it does point up the way in which the anger around this particular story was really heightened by the pressure of the the housing crisis, which lots of people are suffering at the moment. And it certainly goes to feed a perception that some people are on one side of the interest groups on this and that a lot of those are in positions of power and then begs questions about uh, under what auspices they make certain decisions. Yeah, absolutely. And look, one of the really interesting aspects of Robert Troy's resignation statement on Wednesday night was, you know, obviously he was resigning and he was apologising again for the various different issues that that came up with his declaration of, of members' interest. But he also said, and it was quite defiant, saying he was not embarrassed to be the owner or part owner of 11 properties and that he didn't feel he had anything to apologise for in that regard. And I think you know, Fintan has pointed out a couple of different times in different media outlets this week. He was, I think he was on the radio saying, making this point that it wasn't the issue of Robert Troy being a landlord that is at the heart of this. It was very much the lack of due diligence, which I totally agree with. What I would say is one of the offshoots of this story has been the discovery that there are TDs who maybe have or had properties that we are not aware of, that, you know, they might have been effectively flipping properties, that the scale of ownership is not evident in the declarations of interest, and that we don't know which TDs or which which politicians have contracts or are availing of schemes such as the RAS or HAP. So it's it wasn't at the heart of this story, but it's definitely an, an offshoot. I think that's why myself and Cormac McQuinn sat down during the week and we went through the register of uh, interest for both TDs and senators to see basically what scale of the 
property ownership was. And we found, uh, I think it was the final figure was 77 TDs and senators. They were either landowners or landlords. Now, the, the point of doing this piece was not to vilify landlords. And I don't think anybody at any stage this week has said that no TD should be a landlord. The point of it is the scale of the transparency around it. Because if you have a politician who is in the doll talking about increasing funding for a scheme, that he is in receipt of payments from a, a local authority or is involved in, in, in that scheme himself, surely that is an issue. And that is something that people would like to know, and that should be declared before a TD took took part in any such debate. And I know you mentioned Dermot Ferreter's piece this morning, which I thought was really, really interesting. And he made a couple of different points. You know, he was saying that it was reasonable to highlight the, I think the word he used was skewed, scale of TDs, property interests, and, and to, to a certain extent, senators' property interests, when a lot of other people just don't have the, you know, the means and wherewithal, the, the cash to buy a house or own a house. And he was also talking about the fact that their combined portfolio assets shows this kind of inequality in the distribution of of house ownership and that there are these really, really emotive debates going on. Um, And is it not very much worth and important to know the scale of each politician's uh, own personal involvement in, in the housing market at a time when these debates are happening, at a time when we have a housing crisis which has maybe more than once described as a national emergency and which has definitely seen uh, Sinn Féin capitalise on this issue and make it their own and will contribute to them potentially ent- entering entering government next time because they've made all kinds of promises on that. So there's a couple of things there, basically. I think it is, this wasn't the heart of the Robert Troy issue, but it was an offshoot and it will be something that will be examined in the future. And I think the context of both issues are the same and that's transparency. And there is part of this, Fintan, which um, it strikes me, look at, I mean, in some ways the, the, this incident is illustrative of it, of the kind of the, the peculiar hellscape of the Irish housing crisis at the moment, that, that several of these properties are essentially being paid for by the state. So we have a situation in which an elected representative is essentially being paid by the state for, for, for the use of his property, and that doesn't need to be declared which really kind of boggles my mind somewhat and begs a whole lot of questions. Uh, I mean, you're absolutely right. You know, one of the benefits of this um, rather sad story is that, as Jen was saying, it it has kind of shone a light on just the detail of of a lot of what's going on behind the scenes. And one of the things it brings very much to the fore is the fact that there's almost no such thing as a private landlord left in Ireland. (laughs) You know, the myth that Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael would tell themselves, you know, is that, uh, you know, they're encouraging private initiative. And that was very much the story that Robert Troy himself wanted to tell, you know, not a, not a man of privilege, worked hard, you know, for everything he got, built up his property empire, grand, fine, you know. But, of course, so much of the uh, private uh, property market is either directly or indirectly subsidised by the state. You know, the state is the biggest tenant, effectively, through all of these schemes. And it's, it's, it's one aspect of the insanity of housing policy, you know, which is that the state is spending billions every year um, to, you know, give it directly to private landlords. The state gets nothing in return, gets no asset. I mean, if that money was spent building public housing, uh, the state could borrow the money very, very cheaply. And it could have that public housing on the books, you know, as, as part of the, um, the national balance sheet. You know, the state would be the owner of the social housing. 
And the refusal over time, you know, over decades, and this is what Dermot was kind of also kind of writing about this morning, but I've said this over and over and over again, but, you know, why could somebody like me in 1958, when the country was on its knees, be born in social housing, you know, and grow up in social housing? And, and, and millions of Irish people, you know, over the course of the, the 100-year history of the state, grew up in social housing. Were we all wretches? Were we all criminals? You know, were we all like some kind of pariahs? You know, was there something really fundamentally wrong that we had to say, oh, Jesus, we can't keep doing this? You know, I mean, how, how could the state in the 1930s, with the, the, the Great Depression, the economic war, you know, the terrible state of the Irish economy, I mean, how could it build Crumlin, where, 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 where I grew up, where some of the biggest housing developments in Western Europe at, at, its, uh, at, at, at that particular time? You know, the, the, the attitude that underlies all of this, you know, which, is, which, which really, it's a shift that really happened in the 1980s, that uh, it wasn't the state's job to, to be in the house building arena. You know, that, 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 I think, leads to this kind of grotesque situation whereby you can have people in governments who are making laws, who are making comments and, you know, contributions in the doll about housing policy, themselves being beneficiaries of the failure of the state. Because remember, all of these programs, all of this, this, this massive subsidy that the, that the state's giving to private landlords is a result of policy failure. Right? The, the more money the state's putting into private landlords, uh, the more you can point to say that this is the state filling a vacuum uh, that it itself has has created. So there's a very direct connection between decades of policy failure on the one side and this sort of rather queasy, incestuous uh, situation that you get whereby you, you, you have politicians, including those in government themselves, who are who are you know, in direct relationships as landlords with local authorities and with the state. Mm. Finally, Pat, I want to ask you about the legislative structures themselves, the standards in public office legislation and the body which is there to supposedly enforce them. We also shed a bit of light on that as well, isn't it? And that seems to me to be absolutely disgraceful. This body has no teeth, essentially, of any sort. It doesn't even have the right to initiate an inquiry. It has to, it can only deal with external complaints. So it's reliant on the media or private citizens or wherever it might be. It has been calling on three, four, five successive governments for reform and improvement in that situation. And it's basically been ignored. We're told now, Maria, all of a sudden, apparently there's some uh, some proposed amendments coming down the line. That's exactly the kind of thing that feeds into the worst suspicions and cynicism about politics in Ireland. Yeah, I mean, I was writing about this the other day that, you know, in Sippo's annual report, I think Fintermeyer references as well over the course of the week, that, you know, Sippo's annual report every year, it lays out the reforms that it has advocated and states whether there has been progress in them since its last annual report. And in the case of, I don't know, it's 40 or 50 of them in its current annual report, the summary is that no progress has been made over the course of the of the last year. And this isn't a recent thing. SIPO first requested the right to investigate things on its uh, own initiative as far back as 2004. But there was no political will to grant them that. And successive governments have come and gone without answering the request 
uh, from SIPO for additional powers. There's other things you could mention in passing as well. So while assets have to be declared in the register of interests, liabilities don't have to be declared. But as anyone has any familiarity with the balance sheet knows that uh, one side is as important uh, as the other and is there is at least as much scope for a legislator or office holder to be compromised by their liabilities as there is by their assets. And that has been repeatedly sought. Uh, it hasn't been legislated for. Uh, there is a review of the ethics legislation underway. It is part of the programme for government that the legislation will be updated and the powers will be strengthened. There is a review underway. I spoke to the Department of Public Expenditure about this yesterday. They expect that that review will be concluded in the coming weeks and legislation will be brought forward by the minister in the coming months. I'll believe it when I see it, at least on, on that timetable. And, uh, you know, we shouldn't forget that the, the this was, there was attempted reforms before. There was legislation introduced in t- 2015, uh, which sat on order papers and in committee for five years until it fell as all outstanding legislation does when the doll was dissolved uh, in 2020. I mean, the summary of all this, I think, Q, is that there hasn't been the political will to make changes uh, in this. Uh, I think perhaps not on the part of the, the all the governing parties, but I think that political will is growing. Uh, and if it's not done by this government, then perhaps it'll be done by the next one. Right, we'll we'll leave it there for today. Thanks very much to, to Finton, to Pat and to Jen for joining us. Our producer was Declan Conlon. You can mail us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com and we're going to be back very soon. Until then, thanks for listening.